Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to Pediapod for December 2020. This month, the Society for Pediatric Research's Perspectives on the Future of Neonatal Encephalopathy Trials. Therapeutic hypothermia has long been the standard of care for infants with moderate to severe neonatal encephalopathy. Whilst this has improved outcomes significantly since its inception, the incidence of death or major neurodevelopmental disability in infants receiving hypothermia still ranges from 16 to 29%. Therefore, the future of treatment for neonatal encephalopathy will focus on hypothermia adjuvant therapies. In order to target infants with the most appropriate and timely treatments, there needs to be a rethink in how neonatal encephalopathy clinical trials are designed and analysed, according to a multidisciplinary expert panel who met at the Hypoxic Ischemic Encephalopathy Symposium, Developing the Future. Kristen Benninger, a neonatologist at Nationwide's Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, attended the event and has written up the panel's summary in the form of a paediatric research manuscript, which she discussed with me over Zoom. Here she is. Yeah, so neonatal encephalopathy, really the typical definition is pretty basic. So it's just disturbed neurologic function in the earliest postnatal days, which usually manifests with a subnormal level of consciousness, with seizures, with difficulty maintaining respiration, with depressed tone and reflexes. But really, while the definition is fairly basic, neonatal encephalopathy is actually quite complex and dynamic. Really, the biggest, most revolutionary thing to happen in neonatal encephalopathy is therapeutic hypothermia, which from all of the trials that have previously happened, we now know that in infants with moderate to severe neonatal encephalopathy, therapeutic hypothermia reduces death or neurodevelopmental disability and increases rates of survival with normal neurologic function. But I think the big caveat is that although rates of death and disability are lower, they still range between anywhere from 16 to 30% in recent studies of infants still having significant disability and death. And I think complicating that is the variability in outcomes in that some infants seem to respond better to therapeutic hypothermia or have a more optimal outcome. And we don't always know exactly why that is or how we can help the infants who don't have optimal outcomes. And so really the next phase of neonatal encephalopathy clinical trials focuses on hypothermia adjuvant therapies. And so this paper really discusses both those adjuvant therapies, but also new ways to think about how we evaluate each new and upcoming adjuvant therapy. 
And so to discuss some of those challenges ahead for the future of clinical trials into neonatal encephalopathy, you were part of a symposium, weren't you? And that's what this paper highlights the results of. Yeah, so this paper is really a consensus summary of this symposium. So the symposium was organized by a group at Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, and really brought together a unique combination, really diverse group of experts in a variety of areas, including neurodevelopment, neuroimaging, basic science, clinical trials, biostatistics, but all having a common thread of involvement in some aspect of neonatal encephalopathy research. So whether developing preclinical models to test new therapeutics or design and management of really large multi-center clinical trials to design of the optimal outpatient developmental follow-up approach. And so the goal was really to recognize hurdles and opportunities in future clinical trial design, in assessment modalities, in neurodevelopmental testing and biomarker use, and biostatistical analyses of neonatal encephalopathy clinical trials in the future. What are some of the exciting new adjuvant therapies that you think will be the focus of future clinical trials? Yeah, so we looked at therapies that were undergoing current preclinical or clinical studies. So a couple that we specifically discussed were erythropoietin, which is in the phase three HEAL trial. We also discussed cord blood and stem cells. We discussed melatonin. We discussed different anti-epileptics such as topiramate. So those were a couple that we discussed that are already into that clinical phase that have ongoing studies. But in addition to that, there are many that are even still in the preclinical phase that we didn't even touch on it at this specific symposium. Why don't we start then by hearing what the consensus recommendations were then with regards to the clinical detection of brain injury and the severity? Yeah, so I think that that, like a lot of the areas that were discussed at this symposium, in most of them, the consensus was a comprehensive approach that involves tools from multiple different modalities and the importance of uh, measurement at multiple different time points. So the group didn't come up necessarily with a consensus of these are the exact tests and the exact time points. Some kind of big picture things that were discussed were the importance of consistently timed serial neurologic exams and the importance of the standardization of that neurological exam. So some ways discussed were rigorous training and validation of each examiner, especially because trials um, involving neonatal encephalopathy are often multi-site trials, which really can introduce a lot of variability in examiners, in the timing of exam. Um, Another solution that was proposed was video recording of the neurological exam to really refine practice and improve validity and reliability. And then rather than relying on the neurologic exam alone to help identification of appropriate neonates for therapeutic hypothermia, and really, I think, to help identify, I think something that was focused on was identifying babies that would be most appropriate for adjunctive neuroprotective therapies. So we know which babies are appropriate for therapeutic hypothermia at this point but which babies could benefit the most from additional neuroprotective therapies. And so using a combination of standardized serial neurologic exams, of serum biomarkers, 
of early EEG that's now augmented by some really exciting machine learning algorithms to assist in classification, and then also some new um, MIRS analyses that facilitate really an individualized risk stratification that can help identify babies who may most benefit from adjunctive neuroprotective therapies. I read in the paper that, you know, as we move into this world of precision medicine and all these potentially exciting new adjuvant therapies are appearing, clinical trials themselves, that how they're performed has sort of remained the same for a couple of decades. What were the recommendations for how the clinical trials themselves are performed and designed? Yeah, so I think the input in this area was really fueled from people who have spent time both in academics, but then also in industry sponsored trials and really kind of marrying the two of those approaches because sometimes they are very different. I think particular focus on process building, on efficiency, on customer service is something that maybe is more typical in industry sponsored trials. And so having representatives from trials in different realms of medicine really helped kind of envision a kind of a combination of the two approaches. And as we uh, explored new and different adjuvant therapies, what were the thoughts on, you know, these surrogate outcome measures? Yeah, so I think the focus on surrogate outcome measures was really rooted in the fact that there are many new promising therapeutics but waiting until a two-year developmental endpoint can be problematic for a couple reasons. It really reduces your efficiency in being able to evaluate multiple different therapeutics, but it also is now complicated by the fact that there are a lot of really exciting therapeutics and rehab therapies that occur in the post-discharge period, which really could alter a child's trajectory on top of a neuroprotective medicine that they receive in the hospital, it can alter that post-discharge trajectory, then confounding that two-year outcome. So while while it was really emphasized that this doesn't at all mean that the two-year outcome isn't important, I think everyone was in agreement that it was still a critical outcome, but possibly using a surrogate outcome measure or an intermediate outcome measure to improve the efficiency of these kinds of trials, continuing to study each therapeutic long-term, but using that intermediate surrogate endpoint to improve that efficiency. And I suppose, presumably, it would be more helpful if everyone sort of adopted these standards at the same time. It will increase the power of everyone's research. Yeah, I think having things like this symposium where you bring together a group of experts in multiple domains of a specific problem helps. I think having large networks that combine investigators at multiple different sites with, you know, the same trial protocols helps. But I think it is something that will continue to be a challenge, not only in this area of medicine, but I think in a lot of areas. That was Kristen Benninger from Nationwide Children's Hospital, Columbus, Ohio. And that's it for this episode. Please join us for the next edition of Pediapod. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 